Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with Ben Raskin, the author of the Woodchip Handbook, a complete guide for farmers, gardeners, and landscapers. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Hi, Aaron. Great to be here. Yeah, so, so excited to chat with you today about one of my very favorite topics, which is soil building and mulching and so on. And uh, you've got a whole lot of very specific and practical uh, knowledge to share with us today. So I'm really happy we can have this chat together. Yeah, well, Woodchip is, is one of those things. When I started writing it, people went, oh, that's a bit niche, isn't it? And then when you start talking to people, they go, oh, I love it. I love it. I'm so pleased there's a book on it. So it sort of, it, it sort of seems a bit, a bit specialist, but actually so many people, I think, are interested in it. It's been great. So. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. I can see why after reading it. Ben Raskin has worked in horticulture for more than 25 years and has a wide range of experience in both practical commercial growing and wider policy and advocacy work. As head of horticulture and agroforestry for the Soil Association, he provides growers at all levels of production with technical marketing policy, supply chain and networking support. He is currently implementing a 200-acre silvopastoral agroforestry planting in Wiltshire, England. Ben is the author of several previous books on gardening, including Zero Waste Gardening and the Community Gardening Handbook, as well as three volumes of the Grow Together Guides aimed at families with young children, compost, grow, and bees, bugs, and butterflies. Additionally, Ben co-chairs the DEFRA Edibles Horticulture Roundtable and sits on the board of the Organic Growers Alliance and Community Supported Agriculture Network UK. Uh, so ben, I, I, and I love that you write books for both adults and children, as do I, as, as we discussed, and uh, we'll, we'll chat about that in a few minutes. But before uh, getting into those topics, let us know, tell us why wood chips? Why does this matter? You know, what's the big deal? So I guess I, I mean, like a lot of people, I, I'd used wood chip for mulching parts, I think. And, you know, it's kind of quite common and, and you know, it's, it's really good for that purpose. And I'd used it a bit for mulching some plants, but I hadn't really thought about it beyond that. Um, and over the last five or six years, really, partly because of the work we've been doing with the tree planting on the farm, and, and partly because some of the trials I've been involved with through the work we do with the Soil Association and at the Innovative Farmers Program that we run there, I'm, I can talk more about. Just a number of things just kept on popping up. It was like, oh, Woodchip can do that, and Woodchip can do that. And I suddenly thought, there's a bit more to it than, than just sticking it on the paths and, and stopping your, bit, your boots getting muddy, really. So, so it was a, a sort of drip drip, I guess, in a way. Um, and then there was one big eureka moment which maybe we'll come on to later so i'll leave that hanging maybe as sort of a, as a trailer but yeah i like it yeah leave a little hook there for the audience that's great well it, you know reading through the book uh which of course is published by chelsea green publishing one of our partners at the why on earth community and i'll just real quick mention that if you'd like to get ben's book uh, you can use the code YOE35 for a 35% discount uh, at Chelsea Green, and, and we'll be sure to share some of uh, the links and other resources a little later on. But, uh, you know, as I was reading through this, Ben, I, I was struck by the level of detail, the comprehensiveness of the book, including some of the science and uh, more technical aspects but it's it's laid out and organized and articulated in such a clear straightforward accessible way I, it seemed to me that this would be a valuable resource for just about any gardener farmer landscaper as as we mentioned in the subtitle and uh, you've included a lot of really valuable information you know ranging from overall uses and benefits to what's going on with nitrogen fixing and even getting into growing mushrooms and so on and uh, I'm excited we can work our way through some of these topics. But before getting uh, off course a, a little from the main points here, could you just tell us uh, 
what are the overall uses and benefits of wood chips? You know, why should folks consider expanding their uh, use of wood chips in their gardens and farms? So I think, I, you know, not to move away from mulches, because mulches aren't great, and it's still the easiest way, um, I think, to, to make use of, of wood chips. Um, the, and, and not just for weed control, but for moisture retention, temperature modulation, pest and, and disease control. You know, there's a whole range of quite unexplored benefits when you're using it. You think it's just keeping the weeds down, but it's actually doing quite a lot of other stuff. Um, but then, but then much more than that, I'm interested in the long-term effect on soil health from it. Um, and one of the, um, you know, a lot of the science that I, that I used in the book, some of it came from David Granitstein, who you may already have come across, um, who's done a lot of work with, um, commercial orchards in the States. Um, and he, he sort of shows the benefits to the tree and to tree health and to yield from using organic mulches and wood chip mulches as opposed to you know plastic or, or herbicide weed control so that was quite powerful you know i'm quite steeped in the in the commercial world although as you say you know these principles are applicable to anyone um so so seeing that commercial benefit made me made my ears prick up in a way and go okay well so it's, it is quite expensive to put this stuff down commercially but you get the the benefit back so if commercial people are doing it then there's absolutely no reason why you know if you're doing it in your garden there's no barrier in a way um apart from getting hold of the stuff um and then there's a few other things so um there's one grower that i that i quote quite a lot in the book uh, ian tolhurst uh, or tolly as he's known who's a very long-standing vegan organic grower um here in the uk who's been using wood chip for i think 10 plus years and he's mostly been composting it and spreading it onto his soil as a soil health booster um and and he's you know his soil is just incredible and it's not the, the greatest soil it's not typical vegetable growing land um you know what he always says oh, i've got some good soil it's just you've got to find it in amongst the rocks you know <laughs> it's that kind of um you know so we have this sort of soil classification system here in the uk so you have grade one which is the best you know, which is really good horticultural land. And then it goes down to two and then 3A and 3B. And I think he's 3B. Um, but he said since he started using uh, wood chip on his soil, he's seen his productivity just shoot through the roof and his soil health shoot through the roof. And he's done, you know, he's had worm counts done on his farm and he's got you know, millions of worms per, per hectare, you know, tons of them under there. Um, and I remember going one time to see him and, and we he just spread the, the wood chip a couple of weeks earlier and we were looking down at, at the soil floor and literally every bit of soil you could see was a worm cast. It was, it was astonishing. I've never seen this sort of heaving kind of active mass of soil under your feet. It was, it was extraordinary. So it's sort of things like that. It just, you know, you go, oh, okay, there's definitely more than just mulch. Um, and then he also makes his own propagation compost from wood chip. Um, uh, and then there's another grower, Fred Bonestrew, who, who used to um, grow for the Prince of Wales, um, but he now runs his own business. And he makes these hotbeds out of wood chips. So, so harnessing the heat as they rot down to, to, to use for propagation in the spring. Um, so yeah, loads, loads of stuff other than just mulch. Although I hesitate to say just mulch because it's yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty powerful. <laughs> you know, I, I imagine most of our audience know what uh, worm castings are, but just in case some might not just mention, these are the, the excretions of the worms as they're moving their way through the soil uh, as detritivores, right? They're eating a lot of the decomposing organic matter. And I understand that their castings have something like 106 beneficial enzymes and, and they, those worms are providing so much bioavailable benefit to the biology of the soil. Is that your understanding, Ben? Absolutely. And as well as that, they pr produce this kind of sticky mucus and that's really beneficial for helping to create this aggregation of soil. They're helping it sort of clump together and that gives the soil resilience. Um, you know, so if, it, if you get really heavy rain, which, you know, we are increasingly getting now with climate change, the, the structure won't be destroyed. Um, and if it's really hot and dry, it's going to hang on to the moisture that's in it more easily because it's got these 
clumps of you know organic matter full soil so yeah they're yeah you definitely want you definitely want worms i mean i know they're not native are they i think or some of them aren't native in the states but they are here but you know it's certainly we see them as, as beneficial yeah, so they're an indicator of soil health certainly so well certainly the the farmers and growers i'm connected to throughout north america and elsewhere all seem to agree that worms are very good to have around so yeah. um I think it's a general consensus as far as I can tell. Yeah. You know, just, you know, hanging on the uh, the mulch topic here, I, I wanna make sure we're making one distinction that you make in the book, which is avoiding the artificially colored uh, wood chip mulches. Can you t tell us a bit about this and, and why uh, that's not necessarily what we're looking for? Yeah, so it's, uh, you've, got, you've got to be careful, I think. You know, what I'm looking at is, is chopped up trees that's that's what i want i don't want anything else in there so i don't want old pallets which might have you know goodness knows one and i definitely don't want any old painted doors or you know so there's there's a lot of recycled wood that is sometimes called wood chip and you've got to be pretty careful not to get that on the the colored ones i mean i actually instinctively just i don't like them very much anyway i think they look a bit odd <laughs> um actually when i looked into uh you know the potential harm from them it's not quite as bad as i thought it was going to be i think you know i think historically there was probably some quite nasty chemicals in them i think now they tend to be uh i think the regulations sort of mean that you've got to have fairly benign dyes but i just don't quite see the point you know you really you just want chopped up bits of tree really um so so yeah i would avoid any and, and besides which you're you're effectively paying you know, someone to have made it a pretty colour when you don't need them to. So, you know, it's going to be an expensive way of buying it anyway. So, yeah. And, and speaking about sourcing, um, you, you go into some detail around sourcing strategies that, of course, will vary depending on our location and our and our purpose, our our intent, our scale, and so on. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what you've discussed there in terms of sourcing? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you can obviously, you know, even on a very small scale, you can make your own wood chip. And what, what I've started doing, and I think this is almost kind of like the centropic agroforestry thing where you're sort of pulling everything down into the soil. So when I prune a bush now in my garden, and I've, only, you know, I've only got a little garden, but, you know, I, I chop it up with a pair of secateurs and just spread it on the soil. So rather than take it away and either burn it or, you know, send it off to um, local composting facility, I'm just just putting it back into the soil so you, you can do it even on a very small scale but obviously that takes quite a time uh you can you can hire little mulches little chippers and and mulches in um to deal you know if you've got a bit more wood than you can deal with by hand um again it's sort of it's quite a lot of effort for a relatively small amount of wood chip i would say generally um but but it, possibly still better than getting rid of it and, and losing that resource from, from the land. Um, once you get up to a slightly bigger scale, you know, or if you're taking a really big tree down, then it's definitely worth hiring in a bigger wood chipper, you know, a machine that will just plow through it. You know, because otherwise you're you're there for hours kind of feeding these little branches into the chipper, you know, which can take a lot of time. Whereas the big ones, they're relatively cheap to hire in, you know, depending on where you are again, you know, there's certainly if you're if you're a bit more isolated then actually you can't necessarily get hold of this machinery so that's that's an issue we had a uh an associate up in scotland actually he's there's a picture of his raised beds in the book and there's just no one within you know 150 miles that hires wood chippers so he had he had to buy one because because there was just no option um but generally you know if you're near an urban center you should be able to get get them and then if you've got more land you know if you if you've got your own small holding or farm or, or then you can start to grow your own and, and that's to me where it kind of hits the sweet spot you know you, you can get the benefits of having those trees and, and that short rotation coppice particularly um so you, you get the biodiversity benefit potentially windbreak benefits and all of that browse if you've got livestock and then you get this great resource when, when you manage it yeah you know we're, we're even hearing about uh, some communities here in north america that are pooling together often with a local nonprofit uh, to have the wood chipper resource and a trained crew to manage it that can go to different yards and neighborhoods right. when folks have need and opportunity to chip up wood. So uh, 
Um, we're actually working on a resource uh, currently that will be out hopefully sometime in the next year or so that is focused on neighborhood scale um, stewardship, regeneration and sustainability efforts and, you know, helping move the needle in that direction. Um, so we'll, we'll be sure to include wood chipping as part of this resource. Yeah. And uh, can, yeah, maybe there are a thing as well. There are there's there's, a, there's websites where you can sort of register yourself to receive free chip as well. And I think oh, yeah. particularly in, in the States, I think there's um, some of the power companies when they clear the trees from the lines will will sort of redistribute some of that chip to local you know, uh, customers or neighborhoods. So there's, you know, there are opportunities to get hold of free chip in, in some quantity. Um, and certainly that's what we do. The farm where I work, we're, um, you know, we have two arborists who, who you know, in the UK, you, you have to pay to get rid of your wood chip so so for them to be able to give it to us you know one of them particularly is you know we're a mile away he lives on his way home so he can just drive in we've got a concrete pad he can drop it off it's simple and it, it sort of works for both of us so um but yeah i i have heard in some parts of the uk now you can't get hold of it free you have to start you have to pay them to drop it so i think it's sort of it's getting scarce in some parts but yeah the old the, uh, supply and demand huh Exactly. But that's, I mean, you know, okay, it's a shame you can't get it free, but it's great that it's being valued and, and not just kind of dumped to, you know, because there was a time when it was ending up in landfill, which is just crazy. So, Yeah, no doubt. That's, that's a doubly, uh, if not triply, uh, negative impact, right? One of the things we'd love to share with people and make sure our audience knows about this today is that when we send our organic quote unquote wastes to landfill, often they go into anaerobic decomposition, which produces a lot of methane that leaks up into the atmosphere, exacerbating the energy heat trapping um, attributes of the atmosphere. So whenever we can, with any of our plant derived, whether it's used paper towels or kitchen scraps or wood chips, leaves in the yard, whenever we can compost those instead or apply them to the landscape, it's a much better situation overall. Yeah, absolutely. So what about when folks are sourcing chips from uh, commercial uh, suppliers and or are buying them, what's the best way for people to get the quality they're expecting and make sure there aren't contaminants and these aren't recycled uh, wood products that might have paints or whatever on them? Yeah, I mean, it, it can be tricky. I mean, the best way, obviously, is to know who's producing it. Um, and again, you know, we're, we're lucky. We've got these two guys and, you know, we can look at the band when it comes in and, and you know, they know the sort of stuff we want. Uh, although, you know, we we occasionally get, you know, chainsaw helmet left in it or, you know, <laughs> which uh, is interesting. But, um, but yeah, generally, the, the quality is great. Um, and I think, you know, you, mostly you can see if you look at it, particularly if it's not composted already, you can see whether it's got anything undesirable in that. You know, you want nice, clean bits of what looks like recognizable tree. Um, uh, but, you know, ask, ask the retailer, ask who it is you're getting from. Um, and, you know, if, if it's a arborist dropping some chip, and you don't like the look of it, then, you know, send it back because, you know, you don't. You don't want if it's not useful to you, then it's you know free is not always good, is it? If it's if it's not something you want. So, um, but normally, yeah, I think normally you can, if you look at it, you can see it. once it's composted, it gets a bit trickier, um, you know, because everything sort of breaks down a bit and looks brown. And unless you're looking at a microscope, you can't always tell what's in it. Uh, and it's, again, we have that uh, a bit of a problem with some of our green compost or green waste compost, they're sometimes called yeah the municipal ones which end up having quite a lot of glass and plastic contaminants in them. But, but you can't see it if you look at it often. Um, so, you know, one of the things I like about wood chip is it's much less likely to have some of those in because it tends to just come from trees. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And you had just mentioned a few moments ago about, you know, for those who are able to grow your own, and, and you mentioned a number of short rotation coppice uh, species that are, really useful, including willow, poplar, hazel, chestnut, et cetera. Can you describe for us um, why those particular trees have such a beneficial value in this kind of a wood chip system? So I'll maybe come on to willow in a minute, but um, generally I think there's 
not very much research has been done on single species chip. And I think there's, I think there's potentially just so much that we could get from that because each tree will have a particular chemical makeup that might benefit, you know, our system in a particular way. But most of that research hasn't been done. Um, and then within that, you, you know, different trees, you know, some trees are hard, you know, willow obviously goes really quickly, but breaks down quite quickly. Um, in one of our trials, one of the growers used a hornbeam um, mulch, which was really hard and lasted three times the amount. So, you know, you go, okay, well, I'm going to get less chip per plant per year, but if I've only got to apply it once instead of having to apply it three times, then it might still be worth it. So sort of understanding the, um, you know, the different properties of different woods is really helpful. Um, but the willow is particularly interesting. And we did um, one of these innovative farmers uh, field labs that I mentioned looking at willow. So there's a, a scientist called Glenn Percival who, who works a lot with urban trees. And he was doing a, a trial using single species wood chip. And he noticed that the apple tree that he put the willow chip around seemed to have less apple scab disease than, than the ones that didn't have willow. And he thought that's quite interesting. Um, and the theory is basically that the salicylic acid, you know, the aspirin that's in willow um, stimulates, seems to stimulate an immune reaction in the tree that makes it better able to fight off disease. So we wanted to test that uh, with some commercial alcoholic cider producers here in the southwest. Um, uh, and we did, I think we had uh, five or six growers, I think, involved in the trial. Um, and and the, the the trial showed a trend towards effectiveness. Uh, we, we didn't prove it. Mainly, he thinks, because they were all a bit scared of putting enough mulch on um, because they harvest mechanically and they didn't want the chip getting caught up in the machine. So they, they didn't put as much chip down as, he, as he'd hoped they would. But there was still a trend towards this, this reduction in disease. And in theory, that, you know, that should work on almost any disease. It's creating effectively a more robust, healthy tree. So there's stuff like that that is, you know, not explored very much, um, but, but I think has huge potential. Very interesting. You know, we uh, do a lot of work in the biodynamic community worldwide and actually have one of our social enterprise products is called Soilworks, a biodynamic preparation blend we offer for sale and actually can offer discounts through the podcast here. And I know that uh, in the wine growing regions of California, for example, uh, they're using a lot of biodynamics on both organic and uh, conventional uh, vineyards because it's been one of the only things that's helpful with the uh, blight that folks out in California have been dealing with for many years. And I'm curious, are you seeing uh, vintners using wood chip as well on their vineyards? Is that something that uh, is being done now at a substantial scale? Not many. There's one or two growers that I've been talking to that have started experimenting. Um, it's it's quite it is difficult on a on a commercial scale because it's it's quite it is costly. I mean, the, the material itself is not always that expensive, um, but spreading it and particularly in you know, somewhere like a vineyard, you've got a lot of rows of a lot of small plants. You know, so it's slightly different where you've got big trees and not so many of them. Um, but it's you know. It, even if you think it's great, and even if it's having a difference, just getting the getting the material and spreading it is a big cost. Um, so, so this you know again, this is why I think if you can start to produce your own and have it on site, um, and and then you're sort of cutting out some of that transport cost, which is the big issue really for a lot of it. The, the material is usually free or, or cheap, but the cost of transporting it and spreading it is is the barrier. But uh, yeah, it would be interesting to see to see how much effect it has on on some of those um, vineyard diseases. Though. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And getting back to the point about harder woods generally breaking down more slowly, um, is it essentially kind of a one to one correlation in terms of the faster, softer woods and the slower growing, harder woods in terms of how long that wood chip lasts uh, in in contact with the soil? I mean, instinctively, yes. I, I haven't, I haven't seen studies actually looking at breakdown rates, and I, I think it depends a little bit on probably climate. You know, so things probably break down quicker here, where we're a bit warm and wet. Uh, you know, whereas if you're really dry, they're just getting hot and dry. They're just going to sit there probably. So, 
So I suspect there's that. Um, there's the, um, yeah, I don't know as a shot. So I, I just know from looking at stuff and using it um, that, that there are definitely, you know, harder wood takes longer to break down, bigger lumps take longer to break down, you know, so, so, so you know, quite often get asked, well, what's the best, what, what's the best chip to use or how big do I want it? Okay, well, it depends what you want to use it for, <laughs> you know, because it's not big or small, it's not good or bad. You know, if you want to mulch a tree, then you probably want big, fresh chip. Um, because it's not, you know, the roots are deep down, it's not going to rob nitrogen uh, or, you know, the, the, it will rob nitrogen just from the sort of one or two centimetres that it touches of the soil. So, so for a tree, you know, the roots are deep down, that's fine. Um, but if you're starting to mulch, uh, you know, so like raspberries or shallow rooted vegetables um, and you put fresh wood on the, on the surface, it's going to probably cause some problems. So then you might want either a very small chip or you might want to compost it first, you know, so, so sort of understanding, I guess, what you need from the material will help to sort of get it in the right condition. Great. Yeah. I want to ask you uh, a bit about the nitrogen piece in just a moment, but uh, this makes me think I'm out here at Elk Run Farm and in the, in the uh, gardens, we've got wood chips down in the walk paths. And not only is this a wonderful way to keep the, walkways covered and not so muddy when there's rain uh but it's also delightful to walk on barefoot and uh this is a use that uh, i imagine you might advocate for folks in all kinds of different climate situations yeah absolutely and yeah what i know a lot of people do is then at the end of the season they'll effectively scrape up the slightly composted chip from the path and put it onto the the bed or, or the soil and then put fresh would chip down on the path. So effectively they're sort of starting that cycle of breaking stuff down already by using it as a, you know, on the walkways. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and in the book, uh, the Woodchip Handbook, you're also talking about strategies around nitrogen specifically and nitrogen fixers. Uh, can, can you walk us through that, what you advise there? So, yeah, and again, this sort of, for me, a lot of this comes into holistic farm planning. So. You know, one of the one of the things I think that's held wood chip back a little bit over the years is the reputation it has for locking up nitrogen. And everyone goes, oh, don't put wood chip on the soil, it's going to lock up nitrogen. Oh. And, you know, as, as I said, you can do that and you can you can do it really badly if you get it wrong. But actually, the risk generally, I think, is pretty low. Um, and I think the problems come either when you use it for shallow rooted plants, as I mentioned earlier, or if you dig in fresh wood chip, that's when you really get problems. So, so where I mentioned before, what, what seems to happen, so, so when uh, wood starts to break down, it's the fungi that are breaking it down. Um, so bacteria can't really start that process. They're not strong enough to get through the complex lignans in the wood chip. So it's the fungi that starts it. And they actually have a relatively low nitrogen need compared to bacteria, but they do need some. They need a bit of nitrogen to work and function. Um, and if there's no nitrogen in the chip, so, it, and again, the amount of nitrogen will depend on the age of the wood that the chip's made from. And we may come on to Ramiel wood chip, this kind of younger wood um, chip. But, but effectively, you know, if there's a lot of bits of leaf and, and young bark in, in the chip, it will have more nitrogen and, and therefore less likely to lock up nitrogen. If it's from a big old tree, you know, you imagine that whole trunk is just carbon, basically. There's not much else. Um, and to break that down is going to need some nitrogen. So what happens if you just spread it on the surface is the bits, the, the, the fungi are there kind of looking for nitrogen. There's a bit that comes down in the rain, but mostly not very much. They're going to go off looking for it and scavenging it. And they're going to hit the soil and they go, oh, there's a bit of nitrogen here in this top layer of soil. So they kind of grab that and use that to start breaking down the wood chip that's touching it. As far as I can see, they don't go much deeper than that. So if, if you just lay it on the surface, you're not going to get a problem most of the time. If you then dig it in, every bit of wood chip is then surrounded by soil and it's going to suck nitrogen from every bit that it's touching so if you dig it down to a foot you're locking up nitrogen in that top foot of soil so that's that's why you really don't want to dig in um i mean i tend not to dig in even composted which i tend to put it on top and let you know the worms and other things pull it down but definitely with fresh wood chip you want to keep it on the surface 
but obviously it's a it's a temporary it's a, it's a cycle <clears throat> so it'll suck that nitrogen up to start with but as the wood chip breaks down it releases it back into the soil and then it's absorbed and because you've boosted you know worm populations fungi populations all of this stuff it's locked up and it's and so you've got this reservoir of, of you know nitrogen but but actually a whole load of other nutrients um and if you then you know particularly if you start producing your own uh, and maybe using something like older which is nitrogen fixing anyway so you're then effectively pulling nitrogen out you're getting some nitrogen anyway from the tree you're then chipping what is on a short rotation crop is quite a high nitrogen wood chip relatively so then you're kind of really starting to build fertility and and i'm really interested in how we how we use those sort of more permanent type of crops for building fertility you know we've had a tendency to go we've got to have animals to do it and and you know you've got to have lots of green stuff in there and actually i'm not sure you do if if you take a slightly longer view um and and build it in around a kind of a longer rotation and a, and a longer system yeah it's so so interesting um and speaking of animals and speaking of fungi I want to be sure to ask you about both uh, growing mushrooms and um, the silvopasture and agroforestry strategies that might be in use in certain situations and settings. Can you walk us through a bit, maybe starting with the mushrooms and then get into the yeah, other? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do have to sort of issue a slight disclaimer on the mushrooms. I am no mushroom expert. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was something that Chelsea Green and I decided we should cover in the book because it's sort of you know they grow so well in wood chips. So, and I have done a little bit, but I definitely would not want to set myself up as any kind of mushroom growing expert. Um, and but it, you know it's a great medium for for growing stuff. Uh, the you know I wrote this when my first draft of that chapter I I, I sent to a, an associate here who's a, a commercial mushroom grower, and he said, yeah, you might have been a little bit optimistic about some of uh, some of those methods. He's, so I think the risk, particularly when you're growing outside, the risk of sort of contamination by different species, um, the the amount of time it takes to manage it. So I had these sort of dreams of being able to, you know, inoculate my wood chip under my trees and suddenly I've got this free crop of mushrooms that are just going to spring up. And and like anything, I think, you know, you've got to know what you're doing and be a bit more focused and, and really understand it. So, you know, I have grown some some nice crops of um, King's Trafaria mainly in, in wood chip bags. And it's worked quite well, but I think to do it better, you'd need to either sterilize the wood chip or, you know, sort of manage it in a, in a more controlled way, which I don't have the capacity to do where, you know, where we're working. But, you know, I think I think there's huge potential. And again, you know, looking at some of those single species wood chip, you know, I've definitely got the impression from my research that there's some species that do really well on particular species. I mean, some will only live on one particular species. Um, and, and, you know, some will grow on logs, but by chipping it up, sometimes you can speed up the process. You've effectively kind of half digested their dinner for them. Um, so you can you can sort of get a crop more quickly. Um, so, yeah, so that's the mushrooms. Um, but the the silver pastures is, I mean, that's where a lot of my work at the moment is um, inspired, actually, partly by um, Steve Gabriel, another Chelsea Green author who came over. Um, and did a, an event for us, oh, what was that, four or five years ago. Um, so the, the farm I work on, the, the whole farm is actually 1,500 acres, and we've been focusing the planting initially on, on 200 acres, um, although we're now expanding a bit. Um, and it's mainly an arable and, and livestock farm. Uh, and the bit where we're, we're doing a lot of the tree planting, it's heavy clay um, and, and not that suitable for, for cropping, although we do do some. Um, and so we're really interested in how we can maximize the uh, well, a range of things, actually. So we're, we're looking. So Helen Browning uh, owns the farm business. She's the chief executive of the Soil Association, but she's also a, a farmer. Um, and, and her motivations were around uh, climate change resilience. So, you know, we've got this wet, heavy clay. Um, you know, it can grow crops, but it's often too wet to get in and cultivate. You get these really short windows in the spring when you can get in and do anything with it. Um, the, the We're too far away from the, the main dairy building, so we mostly have the young stock there, the young dairy stock. Um, and because it's heavy and wet, 
you know, we're limited on the amount of time they can spend out there. We're also, you know, Helen's passionate about animal welfare. So, you know, in some of the summers we've been having recently, you know, and you see these poor animals out in the field in no shade, you know, so we're looking at how do we create shade? How do we create shelter? How do we dry the soil a bit? Um, how do we lengthen the grazing season? And we know that by reducing, uh, you know, producing wind speed, creating these little microclimates, the grass will grow earlier, it will grow later. So potentially we can extend the grazing season by two or three weeks at each end. Um, and then, you know, the other big thing is around providing browse for, for cows, uh, but, you know, and mostly cows in our industry, but, you know, any animal really. Um, and, and we sort of, we slipped somehow into kind of cows eat grass or, or you know, even worse, eat grain, <laughs> you know. So, but actually, you know, a cow can have something like 55% of its diet can come from tree browse. Um, and, and historically, we've got all oh, the cows are eating the hedges, quit getting away from the hedges rather than going, well, no, let's have more hedges. <laughs> you know, if they want it that much, it must, it's probably good for them. So, so we're trying to incorporate as much as we can um, into the system, you know, mostly for shade, I would say, but also to try and include the browse. You know, there's tree browse has higher micronutrient content than, than a lot of forage species. Um, it has higher tanning content, so it can reduce internal parasite burdens. Uh, you know, so there's a lot, lots of benefits to having that. And, and again, you know, one of the, the um, the myths that I sort of spend a lot of my time trying to bust is this sort of idea that you plant trees and you lose your forage, you lose your grass. You know, a lot of farmers go, oh, I can't plant trees. I won't, I won't have any grass for my cows. And obviously you do have a temporary problem in that while the tree's establishing, you, you've kind of got to keep them away from that tree. But long term, you know, most forage species actually grow better in partial shade than they do in full sun. Um, there's a great study, um, I can't remember if I quoted it in this book, but it's in, uh, I edited another book uh, called the Agroforestry Handbook, um, which uh, there's a great study where they looked at something like 45 species of forage and they grew them at 50% um, shade, 80% shade, 100% shade or something like that. Um, not 100% shade, that would be nice. But anyway, the different kind of levels of shade and basically all of them grew better at sort of 40 or 50% shade. And, and a lot of them grew better, even at 80% shade than in full sun. And so, so having this sort of mix of, of trees and forage um, can be really beneficial for, for everything, you know, not to mention the biodiversity benefit of more trees. That's wonderful. Yeah, we uh, out here at Elk Run Farm, there's a whole cluster of farms converting open pasture into uh, silvopasture agroforestry systems, which here in the semi-arid west is also a really important part of the uh, water uh, management strategy. It helps a lot with infiltration and, and better uh, water retention in the landscape. So uh, it's it's great to hear about this. And yeah, this agroforestry handbook, I imagine, is a good resource for folks who want to dive deeper into this particular topic. Yeah, and I mean, it's... Um... Unfortunately, we no longer have any hard copies left, but it is available for download from Soil Association website if people want to get hold of it. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what What's the website, by the way? We may as well include that. Uh, my website or the Soil Association website? Or the both. Soil Association? <laughs> yeah, so it, I think it's just the Soil Association.com, I guess. I mean, basically Google the Soil Association and it'll come up. Yeah, um, Google, Google Agroforestry Handbook Soil Association. The link will come up. So. Excellent. Yeah, and we'll be sure to confirm that and include that in the show notes when we publish the the episode. And by the way, on that note, Ben, let me uh, remind our audience: this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Ben Raskin, the author of the Woodchip Handbook. And you can connect with Ben via Twitter at Ben underscore Raskin, R-A-S-K-I-N. Uh, he administers a Facebook group called Woodchip for Soil Health. You can join that if you're interested. Uh, and of course, Ben has his own website, benraskin.uk. Um, there's also a Facebook page called Agroforestry UK you can check out. 
And on Instagram, it is Ben L. Raskin for his middle initial, Leo. Um, and I want to be sure to reiterate that uh, his book, uh, Woodchip Handbook, is published by Chelsea Green Publishing, one of our partners. Uh, if you haven't yet been to the whyonearth.org website, you can check it out and go to the Partners and Supporters page, and you'll find Chelsea Green there, along with a number of other wonderful companies and organizations we collaborate with. With Chelsea Green in particular, you can use the code YOE35 for a 35% discount on Ben's book and all the other offerings they have at Chelsea Green. And you can get to this via our partners and supporters page or just go to chelseagreen.com. Uh, Want to give a shout out as well to Purium Organic Superfoods. They're offering $50 off of your first order when you uh, connect through whyonearth.org. Uh, Earth Hero, safe and sustainable household products and more. Uh, similar discounts and specials there. And then, of course, I mentioned Soilworks, our in-house social enterprise offering biodynamic soil uh, preparation. Special discounts there uh, for you on Soilworks. And Waylay Waters, our biodynamically and regeneratively grown hemp-infused aromatherapy soaking salts. If you haven't tried Waylay yet for your health and wellness, give it a go. It's a great way to soak and enjoy and relax. And uh, yeah, we we're just launching our Simple Gardening Wisdom video course recorded here at Elk Run Farm with Nick Domenico on a variety of specific and simple strategies and techniques you can incorporate into your own garden and yard and neighborhood. We're selling that for $33 discounted from $99 uh, right now, the month of uh, May and perhaps beyond May. And uh, a special shout out to our ambassadors who are part of our growing global network and who are in our monthly giving program. If you haven't yet joined the monthly giving program, you can do so clicking on the donate button at whyonearth.org. And uh, if you give at a certain level, we'll be happy to ship you some Waylay water soaking salts on a monthly basis as a thank you. Um, and so, yeah, let me, uh, I, I wanted to mention too, with growing mushrooms, I, I played around for years, Ben, um, up at Sustainable Settings, one of the big biodynamic ranches here in Colorado and elsewhere, where I was inoculating wood chips down, I was inoculating around existing clusters of cottonwoods, I even was inoculating some uh, straw bales, and we've got little flushes here and there, but I, I found the uh, best luck I've had, at least in this region, is with the garden giant mushroom, I forget the Latin name, on wood chips around the garden. It seems that that one really uh, enjoyed that. And I understand that species of mushroom is a particularly robust soil builder when it has the wood chips to work with. I think that was off of a cottonwood wood chip. Uh, I don't know if, if you see the garden giants out in your area of Western England. I, yeah, I don't, without knowing the, the Latin name, I mean, it sounds quite like the ones that I was growing, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and by the way, tell us a little about where you're located, right? You were explaining to me before we started recording that uh, you're on the western edge of England, not too far from Wales. Tell us a bit about the landscape there. Yeah, so I, well, I live in, officially live in the West Country, uh, which is sort of the west, the southwest of England, which is, which is where I'm from. I'm from a town, originally from a town called Bath, which is relatively famous. So it's got Roman baths there. Um, I now live about uh, about sort of uh, I don't know about twenty five miles from there. Um, so it's the it's the sort of easternmost part of the southwest. So I'm actually sort of quite near the middle of the south of England. Um, but yes, about a mile from from Wales, there's a big bridge called the Severn Bridge that you you go across the River Severn um, into Wales. So uh, yeah, it's it's uh, what's the like? It's rolling rolling countryside. Um, so, so when you're in Bath, it's kind of quite steep hills like that, um, uh, that I had to walk up to get to school. Uh, where I am now, it's, it's right at the southern end of an area called the Cotswolds, which is uh, sort of very bucolic. You know, if, if you sort of picture, uh, you know, the English countryside, post, you know, little kind of chocolate box villages, there's a lot of those about. Uh, and the countryside is a bit more, you know, it's, it's sort of, yeah, rolling. You can see a bit into the distance, but there's some nice hills. Um, traditionally, sort of sheep land, um, a lot of arable now. Um, and then, yeah, so that's, that's where I am. Sounds lovely. Makes me think about uh, Tolkien's writings. 
Yeah. Yeah, some of them, some, some of the, the, the hills could be a bit like that, definitely. Yeah. That's so wonderful. Well, I, I want to be sure to ask you um, about another one of my favorite topics, which is Hugel culture. Uh, Hugel culture, and, and I, I imagine some of our audience is familiar, but probably not everybody. Um, this is another approach to working with the wood in our soil building, our garden, our landscape strategies, right? Yeah, and, and I guess the beauty of that is you're not chipping the wood first, <laughs> mostly, yeah. although you can include, you know, you can include chip wood into the design. But effectively, yeah, you're burying big logs <laughs> and, and letting them break down very slowly as a long-term source of organic matter, health, biology, you know, um, and then reserves of water and all the rest of it. So yeah, no, it's a really, it's a nice way of, of building resilience, I think, into, into systems. Um, and I've not done it on any scale, you know, it'd be interesting to, to see you know, I think it tends to have been done on a on a relatively small scale, but it'd be really interesting to to see it done, you know, on slightly larger commercial settings because I'm convinced there's benefits. Um, and again, particularly sort of, you know, you're talking about water retention. If you've got slopes and you you can build, you know, it's almost like it's kind of dam of these logs that you then cover with compost and soil, and you know, you can imagine them acting as, uh, you know, as um, the words escape me, you know, when you catch the water coming down the hill. But anyway, yeah. yeah. Like swaling right in the-, well, in the Thank you. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And by the way, um, in the book, you mentioned the problem with peat. And, and peat is something out here in the arid, semi-arid Rocky Mountain West. We don't come across very much. Probably the closest is for those who enjoy their peaty scotches after the workday. Uh, but you guys out there, right, have peat in the in the landscape, at least in parts of the UK. And maybe you could explain for our audience, you know, what the kind of traditional historic use of, of peat has been and why, you know, that potentially yeah. isn't ideal going forward. So peat, peat effectively is this um, uh, long term buildup of moss uh, in an in effectively very anaerobic condition that sits often in, in water most of the year round. Uh, and it's an incredible store of carbon. Uh, you know, it holds more carbon than grasslands and, and forests. It's, it's unbelievable amount of, of carbon. Um, and uh, in Ireland, they, they cut it and dry it and use it for fuel, um, you know, before electricity. That was what heated, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of Irish people used it to heat their homes. And so there's still a little bit of it is cut for that. Uh, but mostly what it's used for now is for uh, horticultural purposes, for propagation compost, and for growing mushrooms, actually, commercially button mushrooms. Um, and it's, it's pretty cheap because all you have to do is dig it up. It's, it's uniform, it's sterile, uh, it's easy to use, and it's pretty predictable as to how it's going to behave. Uh, I mean, it's not actually the best material in a lot of ways you know it's not it's it's inert so it hasn't got much biology you know it's not always that easy to to re-wet when it gets dry but it's but from a you know it's kind of it's cheap and easy and then so it's become certainly in the UK it's become the default you know had become the default um material to to grow seedlings and and I mean even you know people at one point, I hope they're still not doing it, but you know, they'd spread it on their soil as a soil improver, which is, is hopeless for, it disappears almost instantly. Mm. So, so and, and as well as that, the, the habitats where peat grows are often very uh, unique. They're scientifically very diverse and special. So, you know, you start digging it all up and you're destroying, you know, very sensitive biodiverse landscapes. So there's been a growing movement over, well, I mean, as long as I've been in horticulture to try and move away from it. Um, and it's been hampered, unfortunately, by commercial interests um, and by the fear of the unknown. Um, and we're finally uh, getting closer, I think, to a ban here in the UK, mm. um, certainly for amateur use. Um, the, uh, but yeah, uh, the, the challenge we've got at the moment is, is, the, is, is how you transition. Um, you know, so so in one sense, there's no reason why we should be using peat to, to grow stuff in. We don't 
for you know for 99 of stuff apart from stuff that needs to grow in peat you know like plants that come from areas that grow in peat you know most of it doesn't need to be um but but we've become so dependent on it there isn't a supply chain around all of the other stuff so you know there's an increasing amount of peat free material coming onto the market a lot of it is rubbish it's really really bad and so people buy it thinking they're doing the right thing and then you know it fails and they go well i'm not using that again <laughs> i'm gonna go back to peat that works so there's a there's a bit of a challenge of sort of how you get away from it but you know one of the things that I discovered with, with the wood chip and then we're working particularly with, with Ian Tollis was it's really easy to produce your own substrate from wood chip. You just need to let it rot down. It's just time. You leave it long enough and it will turn into a really effective propagation media. Um, and you know, you can stick it in a ton bag in the corner of your garden, you know, and, and just leave it for 18 months, two years, sieve it at the end of it and and you know, put the the big lumps back into a new pile and what you get out you can sow in. Um, now I haven't tested every single seed so there might be some vegetables that don't do so well in it or that need maybe you know this is where this single species could come in where you might find that I don't know hazel works really well for a particular crop and something else works better for another one but certainly you know the trials we did um, so we again we did an innovative farmers field lab which looked at uh, Tolly's homemade uh, wood chip compost versus the leading commercial peat compost and there was no difference in germination or performance uh, in the crops you know and, and he basically just stuck wood chip in a pile for 18 months turned it occasionally and sifted it <clears throat> so yeah and then it's freely available you know it's, it's relatively freely available as a, as a feedstock which which some other things aren't so interesting let me uh mention too that uh after our main uh, podcast interview recording, we're going to record a shorter behind the scenes segment that uh, our ambassadors have access to. And if you're not yet an ambassador and you want to get access to these additional resources, you can go to the uh, Become an Ambassador page on the whyonearth.org website. And uh, we'll, we'll be exploring some of this a little further, Ben, um, when we do the behind the scenes segment. And of course, I want to be sure to uh follow through on our promise about the eureka moment that uh that, that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview but but before we go there um i'm curious do you have a favorite species of wood that you work with when you're wood chipping oh that's a good question you see mostly i just get what the tree surgeon gives me so most of my wood chip is just a mix of stuff some of it recognizable some of it not um so i don't know if i do um but I do, I mean, I do love hornbeam as a tree. I mentioned hornbeam earlier with this, with this child with the, um, and they, they've mulched under the, uh, under apple trees with this hornbeam and it's got, it's a lovely dark color and it's held its form more. So I don't know. Yeah, I can't, I can't say I've really got a friend. I can't say I've had enough experience of different single species chips. But, um, but I am, I'm intrigued by the power of willow, I have to say. You know, it, is, it does seem to be this kind of, um, just super life giver you know there's there's something pretty special about willow yeah i like willow also well what what's the uh the big eureka moment that you had yeah so it, it came out of an accidental experiment i love accidental experiments because you find out stuff that you didn't know you were looking you were looking for so we we've got an area of the farm where there's a little brook that runs alongside the field and we've got some big ancient willows that are growing there. Um, and there's a, um, historically a lot of these willows would have been pollarded um, and the, the trees would, would have been probably fed to the livestock or you know, used for, for fuel or, or something like that. But because you know, practices have changed, nobody really pollards commercially or, or for use anymore. Um, so, so a lot of these pollards end up getting neglected and grown out. And there's a grant at the moment in the UK to which pays farmers to pollard them, so to, to effectively manage some of these trees, particularly along riverbanks. So we just pollarded around 70 of these really big trees and had a lot of willow chip. Um, and in one section, we just planted a new area. So this was in the 
sort of win autumn winter of 2017 2018 which in the uk 2018 was a really hot dry year i don't know if it was for you but um and and so we we threw the chip over the fence uh, uh with the intention then of me moving the chip and mulching a lot of the trees within there's a sort of couple of acres of planting that we had and you know as often happens on farms you know other things were, were more of a priority so i never got back to move the chip so this one area by the fence uh <clears throat> had a mulch two and a half foot deep of willow wood chip which you might think is probably you know almost too much <laughs> it's not it's not a depth i would normally recommend but that year uh the the trees that you know didn't get a mulch barely grew i mean actually we lost probably 50 percent of the trees that we planted in that in that year but this group of trees that got mulched just grew phenomenally and within two years the, the trees that hadn't got mulched were barely past my waist and the ones that had the mulch were 12 14 feet high and there's a there's a picture in my book you can you know you can see and you can't believe they were planted on the same day um and I think, you know, probably in that year, it was around moisture retention. I think, you know, there was just the ones that didn't have the mulch were just too dry. And these ones did. There might have been a temperature thing as well. So, you know, the mulch will keep the soil cooler in the summer uh, and warmer in the winter. And so, you know, with that much mulch, it's possible that the roots were just that much warmer over winter. And so they just did, did better. But I think probably a lot of it is around moisture. But But that, you know, that was the moment where I realized we had to mulch every tree we planted and mulch it properly. Um, and, and we've seen, so we, we planted a couple of hedges last year, which again was not as bad as 2018, but it was hot and dry for us again. Um, you know, we, we had a period, I think, of about two months without rain, which is, you know, for England is pretty unusual. Um, and, and pretty much every plant in this hedge survived. I think we lost. 40 trees over, you know, 400 meters of hedges um, because we gave them 25 centimeters, so nearly a foot of mulch. Um, and it's all broken down. It's only that deep now, um, you know, sort of what is broken down to an inch or something. But, you know, so it's, um, but, but it just protected it while they established. It kept them cool. It kept them moist. The trees have got away. Once they're established, that's fine. You know, you only need to do it once if you do it properly. Um, and that was the other thing for us. We, you know, we, initially we go oh, we're just put sprinkling around and but then it disappears and it hasn't done anything you've got to go back the next year and do it again and that's you know more than twice the cost um so we're we're actually starting to slow down our tree planting a little bit um so rather than go we're going to plant everything we're going to plant it now and you know again no let's plant you know we're, we're almost limiting our planting by how much wood chip we've got to mulch for trees you go okay how many can we manage this year you know that's that's my aim is to go right that's our resource that's our wood chip Roughly how many trees is it right? We'll plant that many trees and we'll make sure that they're mulched. Because we can't irrigate, you know, we don't have, for most of our fields, we can't get water out to them. Um, so we have to plant them well and, and get them to survive. Yeah, I imagine this is going to have application out here with a lot of the agroforestry projects around here. And I want to I want to just show our audience who are looking That's at the, the video, yeah. the uh, photo, it's striking. I mean, in, in, in this uh, video, you may not even see on your i guess it's left the uh little trees that didn't do nearly as well yeah so the ones on the left you can barely see them you know and then the ones on the right proper big trees so, yeah uh, yeah and there's so many wonderful uh color photos in the book too i want to be sure to mention that to uh to our audience and be sure to uh encourage folks to get a copy of ben's book the woodchip handbook and uh, Ben uh, wanted to ask you also, can you just tell us a little more about the work you guys are doing at the Soil Association and some of the other uh, organizations that you're connected to and uh, helping to lead? Yeah, sure. So the Soil Association is, well, I've been there 17, nearly 17 years, um, which kind of seems almost impossible. I was only supposed to be there for two years and I never left. Um, so we're a food and farming charity uh, probably the closest you've got is the Rodale Institute I would guess um, but we don't do the research side there's a separate organic research organization um, we we also have a certification business um, so we're um, you know one of the main certifiers in the UK for organic farms and businesses 
I work on the charity side. Um, so I sort of coordinate the horticultural and agroforestry work for the charity. So I think, as you mentioned in the setup, you know, a lot of that is about supporting our growers. It's about, um, well, the way, the way I sometimes think about it, I mean, separate to the agroforestry bit is, is we have sort of three three ways I work with with growers and farmers. I, you know, the ones that are already organically certified, we try and support and help them be even better. The ones that, uh, you know, we'd like there to be more organic farms. So, we, you know, we, we try to encourage people to certify and to, you know, to, to be organic. But we also work with a lot of farms that will never be certified and, you know, aren't interested in being certified. But we, we'd like them to be more, you know, organic with a small low or sustainable or regenerative or whatever, you know, term you want to use. So, you know, there's the the change in the farming landscape since I started is just, I mean, it's astonishing. You know, the 30 years ago when I started, you know, you say you're organic and, you know, it's kind of dismissed and you're a bit of a loony and yeah, well, you know, you're not a proper grower or farmer if, you know, you're just, just going to be a weedy field, you know, and. And now, you know, everybody is is on that path or, you know, almost everybody that's that's at all forward thinking. And it's just, it's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so do like that and, and then work with, you know, as you mentioned, policy and, and a lot of communication stuff. Um, so, you know, we don't have a particularly supportive government in terms of uh, organic and regenerative farming, um, possibly getting a little bit closer but but yeah so that's always a bit of a bit of a, an upward struggle um but the the agroforestry bit is is again is just joyful at the moment everybody you know everybody agrees we should be planting more trees and it's just kind of helping again helping mainly helping farmers to to identify their objectives and give them more information and, and access to you know inspiration and case studies and things like that so um but yeah, and then yeah. Sorry, you asked about the other organisation as well. I, I did feel a slight fraud because I'm no longer co-chair of the uh, that uh, group that you mentioned, the DEFRA group. I've, I've stepped down from that, and I've also stepped down from the Organic Growers Alliance um, board, which I was on for a number of years. But they're a fantastic organisation. Uh, you know, again, a small independent um, organisation that supports um, organic growers in the UK. They've got about 400 members, I think. Um, and then the Community Supported Agriculture Network is something that I'm still very involved with. Um, and again, I know it's, it's sort of there's a lot in the in the states as well. We're we're catching up really here. I think there's we've got around 200 and or, or so community supported agriculture farms, but it's it's increased massively over the last you know two three years. Um, and and I think as people start to question, you know traditional supply chains and again here in the UK we've got a very dominant supermarket multiple retailer um, sector they you know they don't tend to treat growers very fairly they've been underpaying them for a number of years um, and some of their supply chains are starting to run into problems and we've had shortages and people are going oh where am I going to get my food from I just expected it to be on the supermarket shelf but what's going to happen now um, and again, you know, building those relationships with your with your grower and, and having that much closer commitment, I think a lot of people are seeing that as a really positive thing. So. That's wonderful. You know, in, in my book, Why on Earth, I, I spoke about a three pronged uh, strategy for our own food resilience, which is uh, show no grow. And it means grow some of your own however much you can, even if it's just a pot of herbs, whatever. Um, and then no your farmers and, and sources for food to the extent that you're able and then show when it comes to sourcing from folks we don't know personally of course the third party certifications around organic regenerative organic fair trade and many of these wonderful practices you know it's those third party certifications that really help us to know um and show uh what's going on so uh appreciate that and, and since you mentioned rodale i have to uh, shout out also to Jeff Moyer and Yichao Rui, uh, two different podcast episodes we did with those wonderful guys at Rodale Institute. And I understand I, neither of them are there any longer. They've both moved on to other things. So it's interesting how uh, fluid some of this can be. And I imagine uh, your uh, retirement from DEFRA and Organic Growers Alliance uh, means that you've you've left a really good mark and impact at those organizations. And uh it's it's so great to hear from you, Ben, and, and hear your depth of experience and expertise. And uh, I, I highly encourage folks to get a 
copy of the Woodchip Handbook from Chelsea Green Publishing. And uh, Ben, you know, before we sign off our uh, recording here, I want to just invite you, if there's anything else you'd like to share with our audience uh, that you haven't had a chance to yet, of course, we'll do our behind the scenes here in a little bit. But uh, to conclude the podcast, if there's anything else you'd like to share, please, uh, the floor is yours. Oh, I don't know. I mean, the, the one thing we've got, I'm organizing a massive show, a massive for me, a massive show in September, the agroforestry show, we're calling it. So we're hoping to get a thousand people. Now, I realize it's quite a long way to come from the States. But if anyone happens to be in the UK at the beginning of September and wants to, you know, wants to come and see the farm. So it's based at the farm where, where we're planting trees. We're working with the Woodland Trust, which is another great uh, organization in the UK. Um, and it's, yeah, going to be pretty exciting. So that's uh, taking up a lot of my headspace and time at the moment is, is working towards that. That sounds really exciting. Cool. Yeah, we'll be happy to, to share that. And uh, yeah, with that, Ben, thanks so much for, for joining me this, this day for this recording. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, on behalf of the Why on Earth community, thanks so much for sharing so much with us about wood chipping and beyond. That's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. See you, Ben. Bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.